Hey, good morning, FCF. Um, good to be together again this morning. For the past three weeks, we've been in a series where I've been talking to you about sheltering in place, and I've tried to show you that as unique as our experience feels to us, it's really not unique to the people of God through the ages. I want to turn a corner. I want to start a, a new series. Uh, it'll be a three-message series, too, starting today. And I'm calling it Adjusting to the New Normal. If we are listening to reports on TV, and I'm sure that most of us are, as we um, hope for things to normalize, uh, we hear so many different reports. We hear that, oh, perhaps there's going to be phasing across the states, and there's going to be testing and seeing you know, how it goes and on and so forth. And frankly, uh, as a church staff, we've had uh, multiple discussions about how we are going to have to adjust to what will be the new normal. Uh, the reality is, is that as they phase things in, full mass gatherings in the way that we are used to gathering, they're not going to be uh, likely had. So it will be some sort of a phasing in which we'll probably be doing a lot of what we're doing now, video church and perhaps some small gatherings. We, we're going to have to really prayerfully think our way through this in order to protect all of uh, you guys and to be wise. At any rate... Uh, the Spirit of God just kind of put on my heart that uh, the next challenge for us after we learn the lessons of sheltering in place is to adjust to the new normal. Now, uh, <laughs> you don't have to agree with what I'm about to say. I, I've just got an observation of people through you know my lifetime, and I think that people tend to bend a little bit more toward one or the other of these caricatures. I think some of us tend to be historians by nature, meaning that we look back to the past and we try our best to maintain the past in the present. Uh, we want the old normal to be the continual normal. Uh, then there are some of us, we bend a little bit more toward being what I'm going to call adventurers. Uh, adventurers are willing to enter into what I'm going to call the, the new normal and to adjust to it, to, to figure it out in order to go places that they have never been able to go before, do things that they were never able to do before, and so forth. When I was a kid in elementary school, um, one of our teachers, she was so smart, she wanted us to learn to read, and so she put us in these contests, uh, third grade, third, third or fourth grade teacher, and this one boy, Rodney, Rodney Adelman, and myself, um, we were kind of constant competition of who could read the most books. And, and so what I liked to read as a little third grader, believe it or not, was uh, stuff about explorers. You know, so I loved Manny's stories about Magellan and Balboa discovering the Pacific and you know, Sir Francis Drake. And, and so these adventures, these explorers, really appealed to me. Now, having said all that, I, I am not an adventure guy at heart. Uh, I don't like roller coasters. You're not going to catch me bungee jumping. And that's not the kind of adventure I mean anyway. I'm saying that we have a tendency to want to be historians. We want the past to become normal and to maintain that normal. And then there are some of us that are more adventuresome, and we, we are willing to adjust to new normals. Now, Truth be told, both of these elements are in all of us. They're just in different balances. And we're going to look at a character to start this series that has uh, an extraordinary balance to these, uh, both this historian side and adventure side. He didn't have a lot of choice, nor do you and I. The truth is, life is in motion. God has got us on a developmental journey, and like it or not, 
throughout our life, there is the necessity to adjust to new normals. But particularly right now, uh, having had this shelter-in-place experience that we did not choose, did not want, now we are going to soon be challenged once again. And frankly, I think the challenges adjusting to the new normal may be harder than the initial challenges of sheltering in place. At any rate, we're going to be challenged to adjust to the new normals. So we're going to go way, 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 way back in time and way back in Scripture to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 6, and we're in that era where the earth since Adam has experienced this massive population explosion. Uh, to set it up for you just a bit, you know, people were living extraordinarily long lives. God saw to it so that the human race could multiply. He saw to it that people were living very long lives. Hence, they could literally have hundreds of kids and generation after generation would multiply like that. So some have calculated, when you come to this portion of Scripture we're going to look at, which is Noah's time, from Adam to Noah, there could have been billions of people on the planet. Now today, we have about 7.5 billion people. But to put this in perspective, it took us all the way up until about 1850 to even get to the first billion. Now since then, numbers being what they are, it's kind of picked up exponential movement, and from 1850 to now, we're up to 7 billion. But anyway, back in this Genesis era, it is conceivable that there could have been in the billions of people on the planet because of the extreme longevity. For example, Adam lives to be uh, 912 years old. This character that we're going to look at, Noah, he lives to be 950 years old. The oldest of all of them was a guy named Methuselah, who lived to be 969. You said, Randy, do you really believe they were living that long? Yes, I absolutely believe. And in fact, uh, it says in Second Peter chapter 2, it says that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. In God's mind, none of us, even if you lived in, to be 900 and some, we're not even living a day. The, 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 the power of sin in us has brought such a terrible deterioration cycle that we die in God's mind without even living a full day. Hence, that's why it says in James, what is your life? James 4.14. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away. All right. I want to take you back, way, 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 way back, and the dating of this is really difficult to get our heads around. I don't want to even talk about a date other than to say this. Um, this could go back nine, twelve thousand years. Early Earth creationists feel like, no, 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 it's probably only taken us about back about 4,300 years. I don't want to get into that dispute. I, I just want to let you know we're going back in time. Let me start reading now. In Genesis 6, and I'll start in verse 1, and I'm going to read right on through verse 11. I might take some pauses to explain some things. When men began to increase in numbers on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, this is only used of angels in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we that have trusted Christ and been reconciled to God through trust, we're called sons and daughters of God. In the Old Testament, sons of God was only used of angels. So this, it's important you understand this. This is talking about angels. It says that uh, when the numbers increased on earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, the angels, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, the angels, went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the, get this, the heroes of old, men of renown. I have to pause here. What you have is this angelic invasion occurring on earth. Some of the angels that are in rebellion against God, they literally took on human form, and they're capable of doing that. We see that all through Scripture. And they had sexual intercourse with human women, and they produced uh, an offspring or, or a hybrid race. They're called the Nephilim. Now, we find out other portions of Scripture. These Nephilim were far from normal. First of all, they, they were gigantic, extraordinarily big, extraordinarily strong, probably much more intelligent than the average human, and so on. So it says that they became the men of renown, the heroes. Let me give you something to think about. When we read Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, uh, various cultures with Assyrian, Babylonian mythology, you read of an age, you have it all over the planet, you have an age of the god kings. When man records there was an age that's usually called the golden age where the gods were alive on the planet with men and they mated with human women and they produced titan or demigod offspring, exactly what we have here in Genesis. Let me just go further. You can look all over the earth. You can look anywhere you want on the earth today and you have something called megalithic structures. You can look this up on your own. These megalithic structures are stone structures. The stones are so enormous. Our largest earth-moving equipment today would have a very, very hard time moving some of these stones. Let me go further. Some of these structures are so intricate, we don't know how to do it today with all of our technology. So this was evidently a very sophisticated age. These Nephilim and these fallen angels that were on earth, they were providing knowledge, they were providing perhaps powers that God did not want the human race to have. So the population is multiplying. These fallen, rebellious angels start mating with human women. They produce a hybrid. It's not human. It's not angelic. It's the Nephilim, the fallen ones. So let's go on. It says, The Nephilim, verse 4, were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, now pick this up, folks, verse 6. The Lord was grieved, grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, a blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And that's where I'll pause. First, I want you to see that the flood, far from it being some arbitrary, petty, personal offense against God, that he is angry at mankind 
and he just kind of, you know, pours out his anger arbitrarily because, you know, he's been personally offended far from it. That's not what we're looking at here. What we are looking at here is a divine rescue. It literally says that the human race had so deteriorated, had been so corrupted, perhaps by the gene pool, the, the invasion of the angels and the Nephilim and so forth, uh, there was only one guy left on the planet of billions that was walking with God. When it says that he was blameless, that could be hinting at that he was also genetically still purely human. That's speculative, but it's interesting. But one thing we do know, he was the last guy walking with God. Things had become that bad. It said the earth was filled with violence. Earlier we read it said that the thoughts and inclinations of men's minds and hearts was only evil continuously. That was the condition of planet Earth in just a short time. So when God steps in and says he's going to wipe man off the face of the Earth, this is not a petty, angry God whose ego has been injured. This is a divine rescue mission before the righteous seed on earth is completely destroyed. That This is God saying, if I don't do this now, the whole cause for humanity will be lost. And I want you to notice what else it says. It says that God was grieved in his heart. God, God's anger is not personalized. It's, it's anger at the damage that sin does to us, that, that it does to us individually and what it does to us corporately. And so God himself was in great emotional pain as he saw the violence and the corruption and just the damage that had been done to his beautiful creation and his beautiful image-bearing creatures. He, he meant for us folks to uh, show the rest of the universe his image in an expanded form because of our physicality as well as, as well as our spirituality, but it had become so corrupted that we were not at all mirroring the image that he wanted to share with the rest of the universe. So he jumps in and he does this rescue before all righteous, uh, all the righteous seed is wiped out. So let's draw a few conclusions. Um, if we're going to be both historians in adventures, remember, historians are those that tend to want to look back to the past and maintain the normal uh, in, into the future, whereas adventurers are willing to adjust to new normals as they move forward into the future or through the present. I think a balance is what's called for, and Noah gives us a good picture of this. There's a, a few things we need to do. We need to, first of all, be historians and learn the lessons of the past. Let me fill in a little bit of blanks about this story. You know probably the main outline. God finally tells Noah, bring, you know, bring animals onto the ark, you know, uh, one of each kind. And he gives exact numbers on certain species. It's differing numbers. You can read all the details on your own. By the way, if you look at flood legends, they are all over the world. We have a little graphic that I think uh, Joe will put up there for you. But... Flood legends, they're not just in the Middle East. They are all over the world. Now, most of them are, are highly exaggerated and silly when you read them. Uh, the, the Gilgamesh epic gets a lot of attention because uh, technically it's a, about a thousand or so years before the biblical writing. But when you read it and you compare the biblical writing, you believe that you, it's easy to see the biblical writing was first because it reads like a journal, like a narrative. It's, it's very detailed. The boat, for example, that God instructs Noah to make, it, it is seaworthy. It would have worked under the conditions. By the way, 
the size of the ark would have easily contained the animals that would have needed to be on there to continue the species, uh, particularly if they came on there in you know young forms and so forth. By the way, if you're interested in these kind of things, there's a site called AnswersInGenesis.com that'll give you great detail about the flood, size of the ark, its capability to provide for all the animals and so forth. At any rate, we need to look back to the past if we're going to adjust to the new normals. And so let, let's try to take in some of the lessons that Noah would have been back. Noah ends up on the ark. The Lord shuts the door, closes him in. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. The earth is broken up underneath and, and waters gush out from underneath the earth as well as water coming down. There's tremendous upheaval. Noah, you talk about sheltering in place, Noah is sheltering in place on the ark with his family for over about two weeks past one year. So let's just call it a year. So he shelters in place for about a year. He has all the memories of the past. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. By the way, put this in perspective, Noah's dad, Lamech, would have likely known Adam. In fact, Adam, the original Adam, was still alive until Lamech was 56 years old. So you talk about a a hinge, a handle on history, it is highly likely Noah knew history and had a grasp of it better than any of us could ever imagine. So I want to show you a cycle, and I'm calling it the inevitability cycle, and you had this cycle uh, laid out for you in a New Testament book called the Book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, but I'm going to, I'm going to call it the, in, uh, the inevitability cycle because it's this. It's when man rejects his creator, the, when man rejects the infinite creator and puts himself, a finite being, above the creator, there are some inevitabilities. It, it produces certain things. So here we go. When we, re when we reject God and exalt man, it produces, first of all, degeneration. We, we cease to be the uh, God-imaging beings that he meant us to be. We, as human beings, were meant to live in union with Christ, our Creator. We were meant to have his teaching, his life, his light pouring into us all the time, enlightening us, inspiring us, showing us what is true and right and good at the pace that he determined us to know that. When we exalt ourselves and shut God out, now all we have is is. Uh, imperfect light. It's not that we don't exactly know right and wrong, but we don't know it in clarity and it has no power to govern our passions. We start to degenerate. We start to become a little less human in the way that God intended us to be. And that leads to demoralization because when that, that light of God is dimming in us and we don't have God's laws and his truth in our hearts and our minds, we become lawless people. Remember what it said of Noah. It said that, that the earth was full of violence. It was a lawless place. And that's the next thing that happens in this inevitability cycle. First there's degeneration inwardly, then there's demoralization. We become lawless. Our God-enlightened conscience and reason no longer has the power to control our behavior, and that brings victimization. We start thinking like, you know, I'm going to get what I want. I'm only going to live so long. So self-preservation is a major drive. And the second one is I know some things give me pleasure and some things bring me pain. So self-gratification becomes the second drive. Now, if you have something I want, I have to figure a way to get it from you. I can try to persuade you. I can trick you. I can lie to you. Or 
I can act out in violence and take it from you. And, and the Lord said his heart was grieved because the earth was full of violence. Billions of people, violent society, unsafe to walk anywhere, unsafe for kids to be outside, unsafe for anyone. That's the natural, inevitable result when a society exalts humanity, created beings, over the Creator. Again, you can read this cycle in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. The next thing it brings is idolization. It said that they had these Nephilim on earth. They were, they were heroes. They were renowned. And you, you end up having celebrityhood or hero worship of some sort or another when you reject God, the infinite creator, and put created human beings above him. It's just like today. You know, we have a society full of uh, stars. We call them superstars. They may be models. They may be actors. They may be actresses. They may be singers. They may be um, football stars, baseball stars, basketball stars. We, we idolize. We, we put people in a place where they become our heroes. We look at what they do, the power, the talent they have, not at what they are. You see, we're supposed to look for heroes that look like Christ. You're supposed to look for character, for those that shine out in sacrificial love, utilization of their powers and abilities and talents for the good and the blessing of others and the honor and good of God. That doesn't happen when a society exalts man over God. So you have degeneration, demoralization, victimization, idolization, and finally you have destruction. It, you know, God steps in and brings destruction to this society so that he can rescue Noah, the last righteous man left. But a society that has these elements, when a society rejects the creator and exalts man above the creator, it is in inevitable. That is a society that has sown the seeds of destruction within itself. And the destruction is going to happen. It's just a question of how long. And folks, I'm, I'm not trying to be grim or, or you know morose today, but you know, look at human history. Uh, you go back thousands of years ago, if people became angry at one another, well, about the worst they could do is pick up a rock and hit one another. Then it got a little more sophisticated. Maybe they could shoot an arrow or throw a spear at one another. But now we can shoot nuclear-tipped missiles at one another. So with all of our knowledge, nothing's changed. Uh, a society that exalts human beings, finite beings, over the Creator, the infinite Creator, inevitably self-destructs. It's just a question of time. It's not if, it's only when. So think about Noah. Think about Noah when the ark finally lands on Mount Ararat, and it's still. He's been on that ark for over a year. He's waiting now for the waters to reside. He's on top of a mountain because it says that the flood was so extensive that it was 20 feet above even the highest of mountains. By the way, I believe with all my heart in a global flood and the evidence is overwhelming, the fossil evidence is overwhelming. But at any rate, when he gets off that ark, can you, can you imagine some of the enlightenment that he got off the ark with? He gets off the ark knowing that, you know, in that society before, it was full of big, important, impressive structures, enormous pyramidic structures, enormous buildings and so forth, sophisticated buildings. Some of the, the, the buildings that we find, these ancient megalithic structures in particular, they're unbelievably intricate. But all those impressive structures Noah knew were nothing. They might have been very impressive for a while, but they're gone. He knew also that there were a lot of impressive people, the Nephilim, these heroes of renown, these powerful individuals, these talented individuals, these brilliant individuals. 
but they were all underwater now. Their importance turned out to be nothing. They were just finite beings. He knew that all, all the values, all the, all the philosophies, all the ideas that people in his society that he would have been so familiar with that seemed so impressive, so significant, so important, they all turned out to be false. They all turned out to be synthetic. Noah, when he got off that ark finally after that year, he knew with a crystal clarity something that probably no one has known as well since him, that all that is not directly rooted in God, rooted in his plan, rooted in his purposes, no matter how impressive it is, no matter how seductive it is, no matter how many people praise it, no matter how many people fall at its feet, no matter how many people pursue it, it ultimately is built on, on just a house of cards. It's fragile, it's empty, it's shallow, and it offers us nothing. That, that's why the scripture tells us, you know, that we're not to be in any way uh, seduced by the world. First John chapter 2, it says, Love not the world, nor the things of the world. We're to have the love of God in us instead. So Noah learned the lessons of the past, probably better than almost any other. Now, I want to ask ourselves some questions. Uh, during this time that we have been in this sheltering in place, and now we're preparing to adjust to the new normal, whatever that's going to look like, I wonder if God doesn't want us to learn some lessons. Maybe as we have been sheltering in place and adjusting to a very different lifestyle, maybe we've learned some things that some of the things that we thought were so important, listen to me carefully, folks, some of the things we were giving our lives to, giving our time to, pursuing with all our might, it was taking our energy, it was taking our passion, taking our, our time and money. Maybe we've learned during this time out, <laughs> those things are really pretty empty, they're really pretty shallow. I was really just chasing the wind. Maybe we've learned that some of the the institutions and philosophies and ideologies that we were so enamored with, so caught up with, they're really pretty empty. Maybe we've learned in this time out that, you know, the only thing that really counts supremely is God, my relationship with Him, and my relationship with the people that He has put in my life to intimately love and care for. Maybe we're learning that the basic fundamental things in life are truly, not, not just theoretically, truly the most important things. And this gives us in, in a, a very unusual opportunity, this time out, this sheltering in place, to adjust to the new normal, but to adjust with a new enlightenment, to, to make some wiser, better decisions. Imagine Noah stepping off that ark. You know, nothing was available to him, when you think about it, nothing. Nothing of the old was present, nothing was available but everything was possible for him. It was just dependent upon what he wanted to turn this new world into. He had this tremendous opportunity to start a new righteous civilization, a civilization that put God first, that loved him, a civilization where people loved one another, a civilization that was built on character and kindness and courtesy and love and gentleness, not brutality, uh, a philosophy of might is right. All those things Noah had a chance to do differently. We've had this time out. I am begging you to consider has God been trying to tell us, I'm including myself in this, we need to examine some of the things that had been seducing us, pulling us away, some of the values that had snuck their way into our life that turned out to be shams. Has he maybe 
caused us to stop to examine some of our priorities, some of our practices? Has he maybe given us this time out so that some habits that have had a grip on our hearts and our lives for far too long can finally be broken? All, all those things, I believe, are, are possible because of this unusual sheltering in place, preparing us to adjust wisely to the new normal. Now, after we learn the lessons of the past, the next thing we need to be prepared to do is seize the opportunities for the future. And this is where being an adventurer comes in. We need to be a historian. You have to learn from the past, but you don't want to stay in the past. God wants us to move through this life on a developmental journey. Lifelong learners, lifelong development, always willing to adjust to the new normal. That should be our course. So we've got to be willing to seize the opportunities that are ahead. Now, like I said, Noah, Noah had this unique opportunity. Everything, literally everything, he had an opportunity to start in the right way, in a new way. He had God's assurance that God would not bring any more destructive rainfall or floods on the earth. He had the certainty that God was with him and for him. God made a covenant with him as soon as he got off the ark. God tells him the same basic thing that he told Adam. Hey, be fruitful, be multiply, fill the earth, uh, take rule over the earth. The very thing that he told Adam and Eve to do. So he, he's got this opportunity to kind of be like the, the new Adam, to start life fresh. I wonder if you've ever had that thought go through your mind, and usually we do at some point or another, and then as adults we say, why am I thinking about this? It's so stupid, it could never happen. But it can happen. And the thought is this one. It's the thought that usually flickers through our minds at times when we're, you know, not that pleased with maybe who we are or how things are going. And the thought is this. The thought is, man, if I could just start over, if I, if I could do it all again. Now, now, folks, I don't think that's the place to live because that's not reality. God can take our history, whatever it has been, and use it to develop us to become who he always intended us to be. So, so he can redeem whatever experiences we've had. But it's not unusual for us to think that thought, man, if I could start over. But here's the truth. Folks, let, let, let this sink into you. I, I know this is going to sound a little silly, and, and it's a little hard for us to mentally adjust to this, but the God's honest truth is every morning that you and I wake up and we are still on this earth, we literally have the opportunity to start over. Much more, we have had this jolting experience now for I don't even know how many weeks, folks, I guess eight weeks of this time out that has made us shift our lives around so that we can rethink, reconsider. And as we start to come off the ark, we're going to have to learn to adjust to the new normal. The new normal is not going to be exactly what we want. You know, Noah didn't have any grocery stores there waiting for him. He didn't have any trees already grown. He didn't have any fields already planted. Everything was potential, but nothing was available. The new normal meant, you know, i got to work. I've got to do some things differently. i got to roll up my sleeves. I have to prioritize. I have to, there, there's, there's a whole new, beautiful, wonderful world to be had. But it's going to require that I seize the opportunities ahead of me. I listed a few things that I hope will be helpful to you. Number one, Noah would have walked off that ark knowing that 
Trust in God is the most important thing that a human being can have. When God told him that he was going to bring a flood on the earth, and when he told him to build this enormous structure on dry ground in a world where rain had not yet even occurred, he knew that when God tells you something, you can trust him. He's for you. He wants to help you. He wants to rescue and save you. Noah would have known as he started this new life that trusting in God completely, entirely, is the most important thing a human being can do. The second thing he would have known is that there is nothing, nothing so important as God's word. When God gives his word, if God says it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, even though it had never rained up until that time, you can trust it. When God says build an ark, an enormous ark, to save yourself and the rest of humanity, you better build the ark. So, we have scriptures that repeat these things. As Proverbs 3, 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll make your path straight. So we have these same promises brought to us again and again in the book of Deuteronomy 5.29, a life-changing verse for me, second year of being a Christian, was when I found this verse because it explained to me why God wants us to obey him. And trust and obedience are just the, the flip side of a coin. If I trust God, the evidence will be shown in that I obey him. If I'm not obeying him, it's because I don't trust him. But Deuteronomy 5.29 says God is speaking as a as a full-hearted father, he says to the people of Israel and to all people since, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would revere me and obey all my commandments always. Why, God? Why? Why do you want us to obey all your commandments always? It goes on to say, so that it might be well with them. And the light went on in my life as a second-year Christian, and I knew that every one of God's commands were for my good. We have this opportunity as we step off the ark and we adjust to the new norm. Man, I'm going to put my trust in God this time entirely. I'm going to adjust to the new normal with supreme trust in God. I'm going to trust in His Word, and I know that when He commands something, I'm going to embrace it as an opportunity for development and growth and as a blessing that He wants to bring into my life. A third thing I think that Noah would have realized is the shallowness, the emptiness, no matter how sophisticated, how impressive, the world and its systems and its ideologies and its philosophies and its governments and its money and its power and its talent and its glitz and its glamour, no matter how seductive and beautiful those things are, they were all underwater. Noah had come to see they're empty, they're shallow, they're a sham. Don't be seduced by the world. Romans 12, 2 tells us the same thing. It tells we Christ followers, don't be conformed to this world. Don't, don't let it mold you. Don't let it shape you. Don't let it instill its values. Don't let it get you chasing its carrots. Don't conform to this world, it says, but be transformed, metamorphosed Greek word, by the renewing of our minds. As we start to think the way God thinks as we see life from his eternal extra-dimensional perspective so that we're not locked into our sense-governed perspective, we can be transformed and we can say, you know, world, you have really nothing to get me to pursue or chase you anymore. I hope we'll all adjust to the new norm in that particular way. Another thought I had was this, is that Noah would have known the great importance of establishing godly, righteous values, decision-making processes, and habits. Okay, and there, there's a chain there. It's when we know that God's will and way is what is the best and the highest for us and for all, 
then we can start asking, what is it that God says is really important? That's going to be what's most important to me. Maybe we need to change. Maybe we have been giving importance to some things before this time out, this sheltering in place, this time when we're preparing to readjust, and we now know, no, no, I, I need to change my values. I need to do what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God, first, not second, not my, not my vocation, not my hobbies, not my so-called passion. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the righteous character that God intends us to develop in his life. And then he goes on to say all these other things, meaning the things we need in life, will be added. So we need to establish, I hope, as we enter into the new norm, I'm going to be different. I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to put Christ in his kingdom first, and I am going to seek his righteousness, the development of my character, my character the way he wants it, first and foremost. I'm going to put the time in. I'm going to put the effort in. I'm going to find the structures. I'm going to take the tools. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to cooperate with God this time. When I get off the ark this time, and I'm rebuilding my life in the new normal, I'm going to adjust, but I'm going to adjust differently going to do it different than I did the other time. The next thing I think is that Noah would have lived very wisely, very intentionally. He would have known the danger of drift in any shape or form. He would have known that it's critical to be what 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us in the New Testament, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, uh, giving ourselves fully always to the work of the Lord because we know that that's never in vain. Noah would have known you've got to be cautious. The drift tendency is one that ends poorly. It starts softly, it starts gently, but it takes us further and further away until we don't know how we got where we got. And some of us, some of us, this jolting time out has awakened us and given us this, this, this unbelievable opportunity to re-examine who we are, how we got here, how our life got to where it is, and what needs to be done for me, you, to become who God wants us to be, and for all the stewardship that he's entrusted to us to be cared for in the way that he intended us to care for. And then finally, when Noah got off that ark, and this is, this is so appealing to me, Noah probably... <laughs> Other than Adam and Eve, he probably felt safer than any human being has ever felt. Folks, we don't even know, we don't even understand what a huge place fear live or takes in our life. I mean, some of us, you know, I know you're, you're big, bad, you're rough and tough, you're a killer. That shows how fearful you are. That's just a different way of coping with fear. We live in a dangerous, terrible world where fear is, is something you should have to some degree in order to survive. But Noah, when he stepped off that ark, he was a man that was going to live without fear. His world was different. It was a safe world. It was a secure world. I believe God can bring us through this time, and as we adjust to the new normal, whatever it is, we can be people that are a little bit less fearful because we've been through some things. We've lost some things, maybe. We've encountered some things, maybe, during this shelter-in-place time that we didn't like, we didn't want, but we have encountered them. We've clung to God. We've come through. We're intact. We're okay. And so now we don't have as much fear. We are more secure. 
Noah would have been a man that as he stepped off, ark, off that ark, he would have had great peace. I want to go further. I believe his heart was full of joy. I think as he finally saw some grass, you know, spring up and maybe some plants start making their way and little tree sprigs and he saw the earth drying out. He would have saw God everywhere. He would have known this was all God's doing. God took it away and God's bringing it back. It was a God-filled world and he would have had great joy and great peace, great security. And I really believe it's possible for us, as we adjust to the new norms, whatever they are going to be, I'm going to repeat that, whatever they're going to be, his world was not an easy one. There was nothing readily available. Like I said, there was nothing as it was before. He had to build everything afresh, but there was tremendous potential. I believe that if we will have the same heart and mind that I think Paul had, we can, we can come to accept the new normal, adjust to it with utmost optimism, with enthusiasm, with hope for the future. I believe that with all my heart, no matter what the future holds, no matter what the adjustments are, I think we can embrace them with optimism, confidence, enthusiasm. First Peter 1.13, it tells Christ followers, it says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's talking about the second coming of Christ. Let me repeat it. It doesn't say set my hope on getting raised. It doesn't say set my hope on hoping that you know, so my circumstances go the way I want them to. No, 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 no. It puts me in a place where I can be um, ironclad sure that my hope will be fulfilled. It says, set your hope, not on things that can fail and disappoint you, set your hope on the grace that is going to be brought to you, to me, when Jesus Christ returns. That's what keeps me uh, optimistic. That's what keeps me enthusiastic. That's what keeps me feeling like every day, no matter what it is, challenges, good days, bad days, everything in between, they're worth living, they matter, they're worth pursuing, they're worth growing through, learning from, and so forth. So I believe that as Noah got off the ark, he would have been excited to seize all the opportunities for a future. He literally had that opportunity to do it all over again. And Noah, it's interesting, he gets off the ark, he's uh, 601 years old, and the guy lives to be 950. So he, he, he gets another, let's say, 349 years of living. I don't know, and you don't know, when we start returning to the new normal, we don't know what it's going to look like. We do know it's not going to be the way it was. We're not going to have everything the way it was before this virus hit. It might take time for things to gradually come back. It's going to take time for Noah to grow crops, to build a house, to, to bring back normal. Nothing was as it was, nothing was readily available, but everything was as it could be and maybe as it should be. Everything was potentially available that mattered. And I believe that's still going to be true for each and every one of us, no, no matter what this new normal is. It might not be what it was, and everything we want might not be readily available, but everything that really matters is potentially available if we're willing to learn the lessons of the past, and seize the opportunities of the present. So as I close, I hope that this particular experience that none of us would have ever thought we would live to see is packed with a new meaning for you. And this, this, this is a God-given time out. Folks, do not waste this. I, I, I hear some people saying, oh, you know, you know, you're, you're talking about this again and again. It's like gloom and doom, gloom and doom. Folks, I'm, I'm happy. I'm enthusiastic. 
I, I am learning things. I am changing things. I am growing, and I know that God wants that for all of us. Um, I think this is one of the most grand opportunities that he's ever given a generation of people. And I hope you are seizing those opportunities. I hope you're learning the lessons from the past, and you're letting go of the old world and the old life and seeing how empty and shallow and useless a lot of it is. And you're ready to reinvest yourself in the new life, the new world, the God-centered life, the God-centered world where Christ is everything and where you give yourselves to learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's God's law of love that he wants to see each and every one of us learn and live out in our lives. Folks, let me pray with you. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Again and again, we, we probe in the depths of its wisdom and, and we see how relevant it is to our lives today, to the circumstances we go through, may we be those that are like Noah, good historians and better adventurers. May we learn the lessons of the past. May we seize the opportunities that you have given to us for the future. May we be ready and willing to adjust to the new normal, no matter what it may look like, for your honor and glory and for our good and the good of those that you've connected to our lives. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. SCF Church, thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to communicating with you again soon. Goodbye.